We are in the book of Galatians, and I'll just start off by saying, for most of my life, and I've grown up in church, got saved when I was nine, you know, just very few, never been a time when I've missed church, uh, you know, more than a couple of weeks in a row, and yet Galatians has always been a mystery to me. I heard it described as Paul's angriest letter, and in some ways it is. You're going to see that. If you're not familiar with it, Paul gets pretty harsh in this letter. I've heard it called the one about circumcision. Believe it or not, when I was in college, freshman year, we took a course uh, that required us to, to study the book of Mark and the book of Galatians from a secular perspective, but still. And they talked about it. This is a book about circumcision. That's what, it was, what we were told. And yes, that is one of the presenting issues, as we're going to see. As I became pastor and went through seminary, it, it became, well, it's the one about legalism. You know, you, you preach Galatians if your church has a problem with legalism. Well, the problem is most Christians can't really define legalism. They, they don't really know what it means because a lot of what, when you try to define legalism, a lot of Christians hear it and say, well, that just sounds like Christianity to me. And then once you define it, most, I don't know any church that says, oh yeah, that's us. Yeah, we've got a problem with that. We need to change. Some people have called it, Bible scholars especially, because it sounds good, they've called it the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. But what does Christian freedom really mean? When you hear freedom in Christ, does that mean that laws don't mean anything anymore? We can do what we want? Well, no. No. But what does it mean? So for all these reasons, Galatians often gets put on the back burner. Preachers prefer books like Romans and Ephesians with those magisterial doctrines or James. Boy, people love James because it's easy to apply. But what about Galatians? See, I believe the American church needs Galatians today as badly as any group that's ever existed. Uh, and I hope to show you why. I'll just say this. A lot of Christians are concerned about a drift toward theological liberalism in their churches, and for good reason. I mean, there are people in the church, maybe people in this room, who would say, yeah, I used to go to this kind of church, but then it, it got to where they were, they were willing to say, okay, we don't care what the Bible says on this, this issue, we're just going to do what we think is right, and I just couldn't do that. You know, thank you for introducing me to Christ, and I hate to say goodbye to people I love, but I can't go with you to where it says the Bible doesn't matter anymore. And I agree. I agree with people who've made that decision. However, I believe it's also possible to go to a church or meet a person who says, I believe Jesus is the only way to salvation and you have to repent of your sins and accept him uh, as Savior in order to be saved. And that person can be right on those key doctrines and still not be preaching the gospel, not be preaching the true gospel. You can be in a church that sounds doctrinally correct, but is not leading you to Christ, but to something different. And I would also say, this is, this, is part, this is part of the problem with people like us, like me and many of you who grew up in church, who've been comfortable in church, is we have a tendency to just assume, okay, if you've got two different churches or two different preachers and one of them is more restrictive than the other, well, that more restrictive one is right. Well, not necessarily, as you'll see from the book of Galatians. Just because it's harder, just because it's angrier, just because it's more restrictive doesn't make it true. So, I didn't... I, you know, some of y'all that were with us last year know that when I did the series, when we were walking through different books of the Bible, I, I, I made notes every night. I did that because 
I thought that would, that series would be hard for y'all to follow along without it because I was jumping all over the place. But since we're going verse by verse, I didn't think I needed to print notes. Um, actually, I wanted to, but Sharon told me not to. <laughs> not true. Not true. She called me a slacker because I didn't do it. But I would I would encourage you if you have a copy of the English Standard Version. Bring it. Most of you don't. So if you can get it on your phone and you can, very simple, free of charge. version app is the best way I know of. You can follow along really easily. Tonight's going to be simple. We're only going to look at 10 verses. But in the future, it would, it would be helpful for you if you were able to follow along. So let me give you the background of Galatians. Background of Galatians starts in Acts 13. We're not going to read it, but that's Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. So you know the story. Paul uh, is this guy who's been redeemed by Jesus on the road to Damascus and just immediately starts preaching the gospel. And then immediately his enemies want to kill him and he goes away for a while. And then he goes to Jerusalem. We're going to read about all this later on in in the study in this book. But eventually he ends up in a place called Antioch, Syrian Antioch. It was one of the great churches in the history of the world because what happened there. In Antioch, first of all, that's the first place they were called Christians, but that's not even the best thing. The best thing that happened in Antioch is Antioch is the first place where Jews and Gentiles started worshiping together. It's not the first place Gentiles got saved. That was Peter uh, when his, in his conversation with Cornelius. But in Antioch, they actually had a multi-ethnic church. They had, a, a, they had Hebrews and they had Greeks worshiping together. And they had these five teaching elders. It's a great, great story in Acts 13. And Paul and Barnabas were two of the five. Just looking at the names, you can see that they're all of different nationalities. Barnabas is from Cyprus. Paul is from modern-day Turkey, um, so forth. And then things are going great, and suddenly the church decides, you know, we believe that God is calling Paul and Barnabas to go out and take the gospel elsewhere. Now, there are times when churches say, we believe God is calling our, our pastor to leave, but it's not this, <laughs> right? This, this is not, we're tired of you. This is not, you've messed up and you, know, you need to leave. This is, the Holy Spirit is saying, God wants to do a new thing. This had never been done before, to, to, to leave and go out where the gospel had never been preached. Because up till then, the way the gospel spread was, as people who were Christians moved, They would take the gospel with them. And then in their daily lives, their neighbors would hear and they would win their neighbors to faith and churches would be established. That's the way the gospel spread before. Paul himself was responsible for part of that. That's why people first left Jerusalem because of his persecution. But now to go to a place where nobody even wanted to know the gospel, they'd never heard of Jesus, they didn't have any interest in him, and to just go up cold and just start preaching, going into the synagogues and saying, let me tell you what our scriptures have actually been foretelling. Let me tell you about the the Messiah that has been promised. He's already come and we crucified him. He rose again. His name is Jesus. And then once you get kicked out of there, you take whoever believes with you and you go to the Gentiles and you form a church. And that's what Paul and Barnabas did. I mean, I don't think anybody, some of you have done some really risky things, but I don't think anybody can even comprehend how risky, how bold this was. The first place they go is Cyprus. That's Barnabas' home region. So it stands to reason that he would go back where he's from. And they win some souls there. They start some churches. But then they go to a place called Galatia. It's 
It's in the northern part of what was called Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Listen to the names of these towns. If you've read Acts, you, you, they're, they're going to sound familiar to you. The towns of uh, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. That, those were the main cities of northern Galatia. Now, why was it called Galatia? Interesting, if you like history, there was this barbarian group called the Gauls that were originally from the region we call France today. Hundreds of years before this, they had moved, they had migrated to northern Turkey, and they settled there. And because they were Gauls, the Romans said, okay, let's just call this Galatia. Galatia. Now, don't go around telling people, oh, the book of Galatians was written to a bunch of French guys. No, that's, that, that wouldn't be entirely accurate. By the time Paul comes along, it's been centuries later, so who knows ethnically what these people are. But they're mostly Gentiles. They're mostly non-Jews. So he plants these churches. And by the way, you read those stories in, in Acts. It's harrowing. I mean, it's, it's the stuff of adventure novels. You know, Paul at one point in Lystra uh, gets stoned until they think he's dead. They drag him outside the city. He wakes up and walks back into the city. I just love that. You know, they heal people. They're, there's amazing things happening. And his enemies are just pursuing him from town to town, trying to, trying to get him. And then they come back through those cities once their journey is done. On their way home to Syria and Antioch, they come back through those cities of Galatia and stop in everyone and say, okay, we've been gone a while. Let's figure out who are the people among you who've grown the most, who've shown the most uh, uh, leadership potential. We're going to designate them as elders so they will be the leaders of your church from now on. And then they went home. So that was around 45 A.D when that journey took place. Sometime later, men from Jerusalem, Christian men from Jerusalem, showed up, and they had three things to say. Number one, they said, this guy Paul, who preached to you, he's not a real apostle. He presented himself as an apostle. He's just a wandering preacher who's trying to take advantage of you. An apostle is someone who walked with Jesus. Paul never walked with Jesus. An apostle is someone who was commissioned by Jesus. You are an apostle. You need to hear from Peter and John and the other, the other 12. But, but Paul's not a real apostle. Secondly, he didn't preach to you the real message. He's telling you that the law doesn't matter. You Gentiles are, are, are in danger because you have not been taught the law of Moses. And the law of Moses is the only way you can be saved. And third... If you follow his teaching, this teaching about grace and about forgiveness and about how you're saved, not because of anything you do, but because of what Christ has done, well, that's going to lead to loose and sinful living. You're, you're already sinful enough, you pagan Gentiles. I mean, you, you're used to doing all kinds of horrible things. How is this, this freedom and grace, how is that ever going to restrain your evil urges? So y'all need to understand, we're, we're, we're glad that you believe in Jesus now, and, and we do too, but you're not really saved. You have to embrace the law of Moses, and that starts with all of your males getting circumcised. Now that led to, in 49 AD, what we call the Jerusalem Conference. You know, when I first heard of that, I thought, oh, well, a bunch of guys go to like a Hilton downtown, and there's little binders they pass out in PowerPoint. No, they didn't call it the Jerusalem Conference. That's something we've called it. What it was was a meeting of the church in Jerusalem. At that point still, that was where... Christianity was based. That's where the apostles were. 
And there was still a core group of, of Christians there. And the, the, the discussion was, can a Gentile, can a non-Jew follow the Jewish Messiah without becoming Jewish? To some Jews, that just didn't make any sense at all. Some Jewish Christians. Why on earth, what, do they, what business do they have claiming our Messiah as their own without even becoming one of us? And it came down to, does a, a, a Gentile man need to be circumcised and embrace the whole law in order to receive the salvation that God brought to us through our Messiah, Jesus Christ? I mean, think about the stakes. Think about, I mean, I don't know anybody here who has majority Jewish heritage. Some of us probably have some. I don't have a drop of it in me. I'd have been lost as a goose. So what's going to happen? What is going to happen to the church? What's going to happen to the, the church at Antioch where these Jews and Gentiles are worshiping together? What's going to happen to these, to these Christians in Galatia who are being told all your men need to be circumcised and then you need to start eating only Jewish uh, you know, kosher food and you need to follow these rules and these laws? Is that going to kill the church? Is that going to destroy any outreach? Well, you can read the story for yourself in Acts 15, but the ultimate decision the church made, hallelujah, was it is not necessary for converts to Christ to follow the entire law. There were some restrictions they put on Gentile converts at that time because they wanted to foster peace between Jews and Gentiles. But as you go on in the New Testament, they didn't even continue to emphasize those things. So that was just a temporary move. But ultimately, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, Peter, others, they won the day and said, no, it's about Christ. It's about salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And at some point after that, Paul writes this letter to the Galatians. Now, before I read, I have to say, I don't know how many Galatian Christian men got themselves circumcised because of what these guys said. I don't know what else they did and how much they listened to the decision of the Jerusalem conference. But you'll notice Paul is not happy with the Galatians. So you can read, you can draw your own conclusions. So we're going to start with chapter one, verse one. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor from man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. If you know the letters of Paul, you know there's kind of a standard way they start. And it's, it's similar to the way letters began back then. We sign our names to the end of letters. They gave their names at the beginning. Paul here, and he always gives his name and usually here are the other guys who are with me. This time he doesn't even name the guys with him because it's, the focus is on him. He's been accused. He, he and his gospel are on trial. He says, Paul, an apostle. That word apostle literally means one who is sent. And more practically, you could say the designated representative of this person. I mean, in, in, cult, in secular society back then, an apostle was a messenger. It was... Uh, it was the spokesman. Today we would think of, for instance, the president's press secretary, right? The press secretary gets to stand up there and answer questions on behalf of the president. Whatever the president decides, he or she has to defend it before all these people, right? Well, that's what an apostle was. That an apostle wasn't Jesus, of course, but was sent in his name. So in the early church, in order to get, have that title, you couldn't just decide you were an apostle. There were basically two things. You had to have known Jesus in the flesh, 
and you had to have been commissioned by him. Jesus himself had to have looked at you and said, I am sending you out. So that's a really limited number. We know the 12 disciples were in that number. Matthias in, in Acts chapter 1 becomes one of the 12 disciples, and so he's considered an apostle. Um, Barnabas was considered an apostle, and later on there were some others that we see. Paul, we know, didn't walk with Jesus in the flesh. And I think that's part of the charge against him. But he met Jesus, the resurrected Christ, on the road to Damascus, and Jesus himself commissioned him. So to him and to most other Christians, that meant, okay, he deserves the title too. And note that he says, I have this title not from men nor through man. Nobody, nobody, no church council set me aside and said, okay, we're going to ordain you an apostle in the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself did it. You know, one of the interesting things about the book of Acts, Paul tells the story of his conversion three times in the book of Acts. If you read, if, you know, whenever you read through the whole Bible, you get to that third one, you're like, I have heard this story already. I can just skip through this, right? Why is he so insistent on telling his story? Number one, it's a great story. But more importantly, it's important for him to, to show this isn't something I made up. This isn't, this isn't my message. Jesus gave me this gospel. And that's going to be an essential part of his argument in the first couple of chapters of the book of Galatians too. So let's move on. Uh, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He often, if you know his letters, he often starts with those two words, grace and peace. Now, something I forgot to say, this, I mean, almost all Bible scholars agree, this is the earliest letter Paul wrote. Probably 49 or 50 AD, maybe as late as 55, but very early, and in fact, maybe the earliest book of the New Testament to be written. Depends on when you think Mark was written. That's, that's a debate I can't solve. But it's a very early book. So probably the first of Paul's letters to become Scripture. Um, and so this may be the first time he used these words, grace and peace, on paper. And it's appropriate for the Galatians because... They needed grace. They were starting to doubt God's willingness to save them as they were. They were thinking, okay, man, it was great that Paul came and told us about Jesus and how we can be saved by his blood. But now I'm starting to think that's not enough. I need to do this other stuff too. Now you, so, so when Paul says grace, he means it. And peace, that's that word shalom. It doesn't just mean uh, a lack of noise or a lack of trouble. It means when everything is fitted into place, when everything is set the way that it should be, when, you know, to, to use medical terms, when all your joints are, are, are lubricated and, and your spine is straight and everything is, is fixed. Uh, the blessing in favor of God. So we have peace, we have shalom through the grace of God. And, and so you'll see the rest of Paul's letters. He continues to use that greeting. And in fact, verse 4 is the gospel in one sentence, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father. So that's the gospel. Jesus gave himself to deliver us. Now ordinarily, this would be followed, and in all the rest of Paul's letters, 
This would be followed by thanksgiving. Here's my greeting. Here's my name. Here's my greeting. Now I thank God for you every time I think of you, right? I'm so excited about what God's doing among you in the region of such and such. But no, not this time. Paul just plows right in. Verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. These are harsh words, especially when you contrast it with the way the rest of Paul's letters go. There are times when Paul can say some harsh things, but it's sort of like you and I know there's such a thing as social nicety. Even if you've got something serious to say to somebody, you start, but how are you doing? Things going okay? It's good to see you. Thanks for taking time. Now I need to talk to you about what I brought. No, Paul just dives right in. I am, I am blown away that you are just deserting the gospel. Notice that. Quickly deserting. He accuses them of walking away from the truth that saved them doesn't mean he's saying you are walking away from God. doesn't mean he's accusing them of, well, you're losing your salvation. But he's saying you're forgetting what saved you. You're walking away from it. You're, you're embracing something new, a different gospel, even though there is no such thing, and a counterfeit gospel that can't save anyone. And he said you're deserting the gospel of him who called you. So you're not just deserting, you're not deserting me. I'm not mad at you because you're, you're going against what I taught you. I'm, I'm upset because you're deserting the one who saved you. You're, you're deserting God, deserting God after all he's done for you. And keep in mind, this is the really shocking thing. He's not speaking to the false teachers. He never addresses them. He never calls their names. He's mad at them for sure, no doubt. You're going to hear him say some really ugly things about them later in the book. He's talking to the people who bought into their message, which should tell you something. You know, I've often said that in every book of the New Testament, there's a call for Christian unity, love one another, bear one another's burdens, be of one mind. There's a call to Christian unity, and there's a warning against false teaching. You can find it in every book of the New Testament. Why? Because those are the two things that can destroy God's church. The devil can't destroy God's church. Nothing he can do. The gates of hell cannot prevail against us. The world can't destroy God's church. History has shown the harder nations try to stamp out the Christian church through persecution, the more it grows. Look at China. Okay, I'm going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, but, you know, communist China closed the nation to Western missionaries, what, 50 years ago? And now experts believe that by the end of this decade, there will be more Christians in China than any other country on the earth, including the United States. So, yeah, do your best, devil, if you want to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. You can't do it. The church of Jesus Christ can destroy itself by hating one another, by allowing division to spring up within us, or by allowing false teaching to prevail and straying from the true gospel. Those are the two things we got to watch out for. And so that's why Paul's so angry at the Galatians. 
don't you understand? This is, this is more than just, I don't like this new preacher that you're following. This is, you're departing from the message that will save people. And so that tells me that we have a responsibility as church members. I say we, I'm the pastor, so I especially have a responsibility. But y'all have a responsibility for what you hear and what you choose to listen to and what you choose to obey. And that includes what you hear from me. Now, I'm accountable ultimately before God. If I preach false, uh, you know, a false gospel, yeah, woe be unto me. But you're accountable for listening and saying, well, you know, if Brother Jeff says it, it must be true. He went to seminary after all. No, 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 no. And and I say all this because I know and love you and I, I know that I have this faith that you're people of, of humility and grace and you're not going to just try to nitpick every little thing I say and I'm, I'm not making nightmares for myself. Some churches, I would be less bold to say this. I, I trust that when you hear me say something that you disagree with, and you will, because I will either misspeak or I'll be wrong sometimes. When you hear that, you'll come to me with grace and say, hey, Jeff, I heard you say this. Is that really what you meant? Because that doesn't sound right to me. Because that's what you should do. And, and, and the same goes for, you know, celebrity preacher, whoever, that you, everybody just thinks is the greatest thing since Billy Graham himself. And you start listening to him and, wow, wow, this, I've never heard anything like this. Well, it sure is entertaining and it sure makes me feel good, but I don't know if this is true or not. Well, it's a, that's your job to listen and say, is this true? Is this scriptural? We don't have the excuse of saying, I haven't been to seminary. I don't speak Greek. You don't need any of that to be able to know whether someone is preaching scripture or not. There are no excuses for for anybody who has the ability to read. And even if you're not literate, you can probably listen and tell whether it's true or not if you've heard enough of the word. I, I, I think I've made my point. Paul is angry at them because they listened and didn't reject that false teaching. And, and he would be angry or God would be angry with us if the same thing happened here. And, and note what he says. There are two things that false teachers do. He says, they trouble the church and they distort the gospel. And some major on one more than others. You know, some are more about, their message sounds pretty true, but they're about tearing things up. They come in and just run off half the church uh, or they, they poison the well. They're, they're toxic in their leadership and they, they just... They destroy the unity of God's people. Follow me or else. They trouble the church. And then others, maybe they're smoother, maybe they're nicer, maybe they're kinder, but they don't preach the truth. They distort the gospel to fit with some agenda. For the Galatian false preachers, their agenda was a a legalistic false agenda. For others, especially today, it may be more of a permissive false agenda, wanting to conform to the world, wanting to preach something that makes us not stand out quite so much from popular culture. Either way, watch out. They trouble the church, they distort the gospel. Okay, so three more verses and then I'm done for tonight. Verse eight. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I now, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. 
I need to say the word accursed is a particularly strong word. Uh, it's the word anathema. You've probably heard that. You know, smart people use that to sound smart. But what it literally means is may he burn in hell. Yeah, anybody who preaches a gospel that's not the gospel we deliver to you, even if I show up and I start preaching a different gospel, may I burn in hell. And that's not an idol. That's not, you know, may I be struck by lightning. This is, Paul is serious. I would, ra I would rather burn in hell than lead someone astray, is what he's saying. And, and so this is serious business. In a world like today's, where everybody has their own truth, right? Paul says there is one truth, and this is serious business. And the church, the church is responsible for standing for the truth at all costs. Verse 10. This is the one that gets me. Boy, this is the one that gets me. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And I think deep down inside, probably nine out of ten of us struggle with uh, wanting to win the approval of people. And probably even that tenth person has at least some folks he wants to please. But most of us, boy, we, it eats us up if we think that certain folks are upset with us. There are some of us that have it so bad, we want everybody to be happy with us. We can't handle even somebody we barely know being angry with us. And so that's that, that idol of approval. And it is an idolatry. And it can, it can snare you. It can, it can destroy your life. But what is Paul, and, and for those people, and I'll admit, that's a struggle that I fight. Verse 10 is a great verse to memorize and to pray through and to test yourself against. But what is Paul talking about about himself specifically? See, a lot of folks forget. Before he was saved, Paul was a Pharisee. These people who are coming from Jerusalem and trying to distort the gospel we don't know for sure, but we know some Pharisees got saved other than Paul. Maybe some of these are former Pharisees as well. Certainly, these are people who would have fit in well with the Pharisees. Maybe even people who Paul used to be a superstar in their midst because of his ability to stand so strongly for the law. These are the kinds of people Paul used to covet their approval and their admiration. That drove him. I have got to please them. I've, they need to see me as being pure in my devotion to the Torah. And now he says, I have to make a choice. I can please these people or I can serve Christ. Can't you see, he's saying, can't you see that I am no longer motivated by trying to win their favor or anybody else's? And it, it he, he means this is a self-defense. Anybody who thinks that I'm about pleasing people, look at what I'm doing right now, because I am not making myself popular in the things that I'm saying. Folks back home in Jerusalem are not going to like me when they read this letter. But for us, it, it's a, those nine out of ten folks I talked about, it's a good self-test to stop and say, every day, am I out to please people or to serve Christ? Because I can't do both. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't matter what people think. There, there are folks who their opinion should matter to you. If, if, your spouse, if you're married and your spouse is upset with you, right? You should care about that. <clears throat> there are people you respect 
And if you think, I think I've lost that person's respect. Well, you should ask questions. What did I do to lose their respect? You know, have I, have I gone astray? There, there are reasons to care about what others think, but not to live for their approval. There's a difference. Not to be motivated by popularity. Am I out to win, a, win the favor of humans or to serve Christ? And the irony is, you look at Acts, sometimes there were times when the church was serving Christ with such zeal and doing so many good deeds that Luke says they were winning the favor of all the people. They weren't even trying that for that. But God made it happen because the people looked at him and said, wow, they have something we don't, and I wish we had it. It won't always work that way. Sometimes you'll be hated because you serve Christ. But what I'm saying is, if you shoot for the approval of people, you'll kill yourself trying to get it. You'll never get it. You'll never, ever have enough of that approval. And you'll miss what's most important. But if you aim for God, if you aim for pleasing and serving Him, then what happens with the opinions of people is you draw those to Christ who are ready for a Savior, and for the others, as Paul later writes, you're the stench of death. You're, you're a confirming sign that, uh, that they're lost. So either way, you're doing right in your relationships with people. So let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for tonight and for your word. I thank you, Lord, that it, it tests us consistently. I pray, Lord, that I and that all of us, that we would be faithful each day to serve you and not to serve our own reputation, our own image. I pray indeed, Lord, that we would, as a church and as individuals, Stick with the truth. Stick with the true gospel. And let this church indeed and all others in our city be pillars of the truth. Give us courage. Give us wisdom. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.